Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by Y Charts. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. S&P 500 dividends per share have grown at a pretty decent clip. I guess this goes back to like the early 90s, this chart. And when thinking about investing, I went back to basics. I reread Nick Murray's Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth, and I'm going to write a post about this. One of the things that he talks about is basically the entire boogeyman of investing is inflation. And it's so obvious, but we get lost in all the minutia. Like, why are we even investing in the first place? It's to preserve our purchasing power and perhaps even do a little bit better than that, right? Makes sense. And so one of the reasons, one of the ways that preservation manifests itself or, or why does it occur is because these businesses that we're investing in are increasing their dividends, they're increasing their earnings per share. In the event of a recession, they have the ability to trim the fat to sort of rise like a phoenix. <laughs> Maybe that's a bit of, a bit ridiculous. But so I just thought that this was this chart was a really good illustration of why investing actually works and it's something that we probably don't spend enough time thinking about. Like the investor should be all in on the idea that stocks deliver returns over the very long run. And if you're not, you're probably going to run into some issues eventually. And the other cool thing about this chart from Y charts that you pulled up from them, which again they kind of they helped us out and I think that's one of the the best use cases for a research firm like this is the fact that anytime we have a question about something, they kind of help fill in the gaps, which they did here. But you see the drop in, say, 07 to 09 in dividends, and that drop is nothing. It sort of pales in comparison to the rise since then. Right. It's like the rise over time totally outweighs anything that falls when things go bad. And this is one of the things that people don't realize is that the dividend yield has, has risen like, not the yield, but the actual amount of dividends has risen like 6 to 7% a year going back almost as far as you can take it. So dividend, the growth of dividends is almost as impressive as the growth in student loan debt. hey <laughs> Yeah. It's kind of the same left, bottom left to top right of the chart. Ben, in the, in the biz, we call that a transition. Yes. I think you're the only one who worries about transitions on this show. So there was a billionaire yesterday, or I guess it was this weekend at Morehouse College, who said that he is going to pay off. He was giving the commencement speech. And Robert Smith is the guy's name. I guess he's He's worth $5 billion and runs an investment fund, a private equity fund, I guess. And in his speech, he said he's going to pay off all the student loans of all the graduating members of that class, which, I mean, this guy, this is a baller move, right? The, the, yes. I mean, it's, not like it's, it's not like it's a graduating class of 11 people. No, I think it's like 300 people, and they said they don't know exactly how much it's going to be. They're still, they said 396 students. But here's what we need someone to do. We need an economist to track these people for the next, call it, 40 years and then track the class of 2020 for 40 years who doesn't get this if he doesn't come back and see the difference in financial their financial lives about buying a house, having kids, settling down, how much money they make, how much money they save. So by the year by the year 2060 we will be ready to enact actual policy change yes. based on this study. In 40 years we'll know exactly the impact of student loans. Uh, Batnick Carlson 2070. <laughs> this is a this is a pretty cool story. I mean if I mean if you have that much money what's better like 
a motivational quote from a commencement speech or this? I mean, those students had to be going crazy. I don't know, man. Those quotes are, it could be game changers. Okay, so a study in the Wall or a story in the Wall Street Journal looked at the fact that there's actually a rise in teaching personal finance on campus, and it, the story is called "Even Harvard is now teaching personal finance." Well, it starts before uh, campus. I think we mentioned this a few months ago, but. 19 states now mandate high school students to have some basic financial knowledge before they graduate. Yeah, so it's not bad. And it sounds like a lot of these are more seminars than anything. And they're getting a couple hundred students. So it's it's still kind of starting small in a lot of ways. But at least I, it's something. It would be nice if it was more classes than sort of a one or two day thing. But at least at least they're trying, I guess. The, the funny thing about the Harvard one is that they asked one of the students about what exactly they're teaching them, and one of them, one of them was using fifty thousand dollars as a low end for salary, and discussing how to prepare tax documents for your domestic help. So, like having a nanny or a butler or something, someone who takes care of your, which was kind of funny for Harvard that is just so out of touch. But I guess that's what they're learning there. But I, I mean, anything. This is a step in the right direction. So they have some cool charts showing family income distribution and anticipated starting salary. And I was surprised to to see that, just eyeballing it, it looks like around a quarter of incoming students come from families that make eighty thousand dollars or less. So I thought, wow, that was that's actually much higher than I would have thought. They said Harvard has slowly increased the percentage of students from the bottom income quintile of families from three percent in two thousand to two thousand five to five percent in two thousand six to two thousand eleven. So I thought that that was actually pretty good. But Harvard ranked two thousand eleventh. Out of the 2,395 colleges studied in terms of the number of low-income students. So the the reason this is kind of problematic is because in recent years, a lot of the Ivy League schools have said if your family makes under a certain income level, you can basically go to school for free. So it would be nice to see these levels rise a little bit and Harvard actually let these kids in for free and maybe do something good with their endowment money for once and not just buy up real estate and hedge funds and stuff. What do you think is more important in terms of predicting your success? Coming from... A family in the in the one percent going to a mediocre college, or having a degree from Harvard and not having any sort of uh, family connections. Connections, definitely, hands down. I think so. Don't you think so? Yeah, yeah. I think that networking and I think that that's that all plays a big role. I mean, I mean, so we can get into a little bit now. My, I, I wrote a piece last week about how I had a little bit of a difficulty finding job when I first got out of school. And I saw so many of my friends who just weren't worried about it because they kind of knew they had some connections. And going into interviews and stuff, it, it made things a lot easier because of the name recognition. Yeah, your, your piece was good. And I think that we all have stories like that. Speaking of, did I tell you, I must have told you the story about the time that I almost got hired by E-Trade, but I, I did get hired, but then I didn't get hired. Yeah, you had a few hits and misses there, obviously, as well, right? Oh, yeah. I was so excited because I was probably unemployed for like a year at this point. And I got hired by E-Trade. The manager was like, you have no experience, but I like your attitude and I'll take a chance on you. And then the manager left. And so I was sort of in limbo. And it turns out that they found a ding in my credit report because it doesn't even matter. It's a ridiculous story. But so the new manager wouldn't even interview me. And it was just, I was in limbo for like six months. Turns out the manager who hired me, we met with, Josh and I met with probably in 2014. Turns out that he's now an, an external wholesaler for a fun company. I was like looking through my inbox like, man, this name sounds familiar. Came full circle, huh? Yeah, exactly. He didn't remember me, obviously. So maybe that ding on your credit report that messed you up with that job is the reason you're getting denied for credit cards now. Could be. (laughs) So I I just, I went through it and I, 
I wanted to kind of share my story because when I came out of school, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. And I, I had, you know, some, I was basically like a B student. I tried just hard enough and I studied and did what I needed to do, but I never really put much time and effort into figuring out what I wanted to do with my life when I was in school. I, I was kind of more there for the social aspects than anything. And it wasn't until I had an internship where I realized, okay, all these people, all my peers know a lot more about the job market than I do. And so I think that really hurt me. And so I think it's easy these days to fall in the trap of blaming the system or the politicians or or something else that's, that's wrong. And I think I probably even blamed like the uh, guidance counselors at my school. But a lot of it was just that I never put in the time or effort to figure out what I needed to do. And that sort of probably held me back and is the reason it took a long time for me to find my my first gig. But all those jobs that I didn't get, I think it was actually sort of a blessing in disguise because I, I think a lot of it helped me once I did get a job and to figure out that, okay, I need to actually change stuff and, and, and do something for myself. You know, I agreed with 96% of what you wrote, but I have to take umbrage with something. Okay, what? You said everything happens for a reason. Yes. Do you actually believe that? I think if you read it, I said, I don't believe everything happens for a reason, but most stuff does. I didn't read it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Damn it. You caught me. <sighs> yeah, no, I, that'd, be, that'd be a little... I said, I don't believe everything happens for a reason, but most things do. All right, fine. Well, most things don't happen for a reason. Okay. There is no reason, Ben. All right. Yes, we're just a tiny speck in this great ball hurtling through the universe and blah, blah, blah. That makes sense. But I, I did get some emails from people saying, hey, listen, I'm having a tough time, so it was good to hear. And I think the the whole point of my piece was just that when you're a young person, you don't really have to have it all figured out right away. You yes. have some time still to take some risks and try a few things and don't worry if it doesn't work out right away. Because I, I had a lot of people who did have their sort of life figured out. And to me, that was scary seeing that, but then realizing, you know what, it just takes time for some people. It's not that big of a deal. The big news in the RA world this week was the fact that they finally announced Goldman Sachs is acquiring United Capital. That's uh, Joe Duran's group who had about $25 billion in assets. Plug, plug. Joe Duran is coming to speak at Wealthstack. Yes. Great timing. Our conference in September, which is in Arizona, we had him sign up as a speaker, had no idea that this was happening. And, and so I think the timing's pretty good on this. We'll see what he can actually say about it. But what did you think about this? Because I, there's been some takes all over the internet about this in the financial advisory world. Some saying that this sort of um, shows that RIAs you know, are sort of making a lot of headway in this space. And maybe it's showing that some, you know, some of these bigger financial players are scared. What do you think? You know, I think this just goes to show that big banks aren't just going to roll over. <laughs> you just stole my take. I, I stole your take. No, I don't have any takes, but I thought that yours was particularly good. So why don't you actually deliver your take? Yeah, see, I was just letting you take a bad take, and I was going <laughs> to jump on you with a better take. But, I mean, there's been huge growth in RA numbers over the years, but the, these firms like Goldman and Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch and UBS and these places, they have so much money, and they're not going to just roll over. So... The fact that they buy one, I guess in a way you could say, yeah, this is showing that the RIA space is, is here to stay and there's people that leave these big firms all the time and start going independent. But this was Goldman Sachs's biggest acquisition in the last 10 years, I think they said, which is pretty wild. And they, they also talked a little bit about Marcus in there, which we've mentioned a number of times, has like $35 billion in assets already. So they're obviously making a push to this space, to the sort of mass affluent space which uh, I guess now their private bank, they said manages about $480 billion, but the minimum account size is $10 million. So this is more 
United Capital, like a skews more in the one to five million dollar range. So I think that you have the exact right take, and it's too early to speculate in terms of what's going to happen to the advisors at United Capital, what's going to happen to Joe Duran, what's going to happen to the clients. We just don't know. We can't know. But I think that Goldman was uniquely positioned for this because Morgan Stanley couldn't have done it. JP Morgan couldn't have done it. Bank of America Merrill Lynch wouldn't have done it. So I don't know that I see a lot of wirehouses bringing on RAAs the way that Goldman just did. Yeah. And the other thing is, a lot of these RAs, it's sort of a, a it's a reverse of what we've seen. We've seen a, a, a mass exodus yeah. of teams leaving the wirehouse, going independent. Well, the ones that are going to matter are the ones that are backed by private equity and other investors. They're those private equity companies and their investors want to see an exit because they want to get their money back. And so, a lot of these firms are going to have to sell out. Right? Eventually, there has to be some sort of exit plan. Correct. Unless, so, I, I think that's that was. Part of the case here too that they needed to they needed to sell. Speaking of exit plan, we work. So I thought that this was just I thought that this was just like a, a headline. We work urges investors to see losses as investments as it reports first quarter loss of two hundred sixty four million dollars. But that's something that the the CFO actually said. And here's my hot take on this: I don't see the problem with it. Like I understand why it makes for a really great headline, but. Early stage companies losing money is not new. It's not like, oh my god, I can't believe this company is 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 burning cash. Do you think this is controversial? Well, the thing is, if they didn't have a bunch of venture capital money, they wouldn't be blowing through so much money either. They wouldn't be having such huge losses. And if rates weren't so low, yeah, blame it on the Fed. But that, I mean, the massive growth they've seen is because they have investors who are willing to allow them to do this. So yeah, so I don't really. I don't want to say I don't see the problem because obviously I understand why people are up in arms and why this made for a good a good article to dunk on. I mean, this company is obviously going for it and they're going to start buying up their own real estate and leasing it back to the company, which now they just they just lease it and they don't own any of it. That part was maybe a little bit of... Is there a potential conflict of interest for... Is it the CEO who is buying uh, real estate and then leasing it back to the company? He's going to be part of the, the fund. They had a longer piece on Bloomberg about this. But the idea is they think... One of the biggest problems for commercial real estate is getting your tenants and having a good occupancy rate. But if they can basically guarantee the occupancy rate, then maybe hopefully they could keep their valuations up. Obviously, that that's sort of being agnostic to the economy and what other buildings are going for. But I think that's the idea is that they can they know they already know they're going to have tenants, and so they don't have to worry about bringing people in. So they know what their cash flows are going to be from those buildings, more or less. Which makes sense. I just it's a it's a great company because we we use them within our firm and we've used them in some other places. And you and I are going to use them when we travel in a couple of weeks. And it's a really it's a really great concept. It's just how much of a runway our investors going to give them. As a consumer, not an investor, I am definitely willing to see those losses as investments. So please keep it up. <laughs> All right. So I want to talk about expectations. So our friend Jake over at Economic had a tweet, and it was two fill in the blanks. Tariffs with China blank negatively impact the U.S. economy over the short run. Revised trade IP terms with China blank needed for the United States long-term economic success. And it was four choices. Will slash is, will slash is not, will not, it, you know, et cetera. And so 54% said will and is, meaning tariffs with China will negatively impact the U.S. economy and revised trade is needed for the United States long-term economic success. And so this is exactly what I mean when you see that you don't really see the odds until after the fact. But this type of tweet exposes 
it shows people where the odds really are. Now, it doesn't necessarily show where people are putting their money, but I think that when you're thinking about what's going to happen, like, so even if you knew that, that uh, the resolution of this tariff thing, questions like this get to like really how are people positioned potentially. Right. It, yeah. It has nothing to do with what they really think about this or what economics they've looked into. And, and Michael Santoli had a tweet that showed people asked, you know, how could the stock market possibly continue to climb if we keep having these, these trade wars? And he showed the Cold War over a course of 30 years or whatever, and stock market did fine. So I'm not trying to compare the two identically here, but it's always hard to tell. And, and the thing is, every time the stock market falls 1% or 2% on one of these days because trade war was talks were called off or whatever, uh, I mean, the stock market has been doing fine. And sometimes investors just look for any excuse to sell, right? Or the computers do, I guess, in, in this case. But I, I think people who hang on every word for these things is... It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So sticking with computers, you, you told me to listen to the Michael Lewis podcast, which I haven't listened to any of them, but based on your recommendation, and I guess it's been something I've been meaning to get to, I listened to two this week. I listened to the one on high-frequency trading, and I listened to the one on consumer finance, which I thought was excellent. But what did you want to say about the HFT stuff? I think th- I'm a huge Michael Lewis fan. I thought the podcast was great. He finished off the season with his high-frequency trading stuff, and I thought this was a big L for him. Like I think that's his his one glare. Like the what was it called? Flash Boys. Yeah, that book is not. I I don't think it's aged well, and I don't think it will age well. And he seemed to double down on it in his podcast. And he was trying to say that high frequency trading is sucking up like ninety billion dollars a year from investors' pockets. And he was kind of pushing the IEX exchange from that Brad Katsuyama guy. And I it just doesn't. I don't see it. So there was a piece in the FT from from last year. And then they said from that HFT company's revenue fell below $1 billion for the first time in 2017 from a high of 7.2 in 2009. So there's been so much competition in this space that it's basically eaten away any sort of revenue or profit they could have made. And so I think he is totally blowing it out of proportion. And I think he just has this sort of anti-Wall Street bent that is kind of clouding his views here because I don't think... I mean, do they really provide a natural service to the market? No. I mean, does is it make sense that you can have these cords a little closer to shave off a fraction of a penny? I don't think it's really doing much of a public good there, but they are providing liquidity. And frankly, before all the computer trading stuff existed, the spreads were enormous on stocks and you paid an enormous, enormously high commission. So I, I think it's sort of a give and take. And if they did tax some of these things and they, they went away and their liquidity went away, I think you'd see spreads widen out a little bit. So it's kind of a... It's just a part of a functioning market, I think. It's funny. He had his son on the show to talk about buying Apple and what would happen and would this upset him. And his son, much like you and I, were like, I don't really see what the problem is. So I understand... I mean, of course, I understand why what he thinks the problem is. I forget. He's, he threw out an outrageous number on what sort of money is being taken away from pension funds and stuff? What was it, $70 billion? Or maybe I made that yeah, up. But it's that, a, that number, he said like closer to $90 billion, which seems like a totally made-up number to me. It does seem made up. And to your point, there's a lot of benefits that we're probably not seeing. So I agree with you. And this gets to a bigger point. And I think we, we spoke about this a while back. The person that commented on Dave Ramsey, like, I don't like this stuff, but I like that stuff. I think that all of that gets lost in social media and just media in general, 
that if somebody says something you do, that you disagree with, it's like, fuck that guy forever. Right. You know? And so I adore Michael Lewis, but I totally disagree with him on this. Or not totally. I, I mostly disagree with him on this. And I tweeted something from a, Scott Galloway, wrote a book called The Algebra of Happiness. And he would be the first person to tell you that he is not a happiness guru or, he, or he's not the type of person that has it all figured out. He is a deeply flawed person like, like most people, but I think that he is not full of shit when he's writing about how flawed he is. And so he had a video on CNBC this weekend where he told Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk to put down the blunts and put on a tie. And I don't really know what he's talking about. And so I could like do with that, that sort of shtick. I don't really get it. Um, but I'm able to like, not that I'm so terrific, but I think that like you should be able to disagree with somebody and not totally kill them. Yes, I agree. Because I, like I said, on a, the, our Rekindled from a few weeks ago, I think he wrote the best finance book ever. But the Flash Boys one was one that I don't think will age well. And I really didn't enjoy it that much because I think his, his take was off. So yeah, you, you don't have to agree with everything or disagree with everything from people. So anyway, so that's Scott Galloway book. Uh, I read it this week and it's called The Algebra of Happiness. And it's just, I just really love his stuff. It's a lot of stuff that I've read before, but him talking about being with his mother when she was dying is something that I could obviously relate to. Him being a father to, to two boys is something that I can obviously relate to. Um, and I just think that he, I just really enjoy his writing, even if I don't agree with 100% of what he says, which again, I think is a pretty healthy way to view to view the uh, people. And his podcast with Kara Swisher, I think, is, is really well done on technology. So a few people sent us this piece from Think Advisor that talked about the negative fee ETF that will that was just approved by the SEC, patting ourselves on the back a little bit. We kind of called this, but it wasn't exactly going out on a limb. I'm still waiting for my credit card rewards points for these. But this kind of got me thinking because my wife's retirement plan, she has a 403B with a Wait, hospital. Real quick, real quick. At. We actually spoke about this this uh, ETF a few months ago, but I think the news is that it, it got officially approved by the SEC. Right. So it's a negative expense ratio of five basis points. For the first $100 million they raise, and then it goes up to 29 basis points. Right. So again, it's a PR stunt, but I, I think the bigger ones are eventually going to do this too. And in some ways with securities lending, they already do. But my wife's retirement plan, she has a 403B, and it's a decent plan. It's got, a, I'd say, a half of a mix of kind of crappy active funds and a half of a mix of low-cost index funds. So you just stick to those index funds. And they were Vanguard, and we've used them for years. And they sent out a letter this weekend saying, hey, we're making a change to these four Vanguard funds. It's like a small-cap, mid-cap, total market, and maybe one of their bond funds. And those funds cost us four basis points apiece. Each of them was four basis points. They made a change from the Vanguard funds to Fidelity funds in the same exact space that, pay, that cost three basis points a year. So they went from four basis points to three. And I wonder how much brain power and effort administratively was taken on that decision to save one basis point. Like, does Such it, a waste is it, of time. Right. Is it really worth it when they have all these other funds that they just let go that charge much more? It just it seems like it's, it's kind of silly once you get to that. There's just such a law of diminishing returns there. And it, it seems silly to me. I agree. Okay. So last week, I had a call with a reporter about credit card delinquencies rising for young people. And they asked me why I think this was the case. And they showed that credit... We've talked about this before, but credit card delinquencies are kind of rising for most people. So it's showing share of credit card balances that are delinquent by 90 days or more. And... By the way, if you, if you don't get approved, you can never be delinquent. <laughs> there you go. Life hack. So this has gone from like 5% in 2014 for people ages 18 to 29 to about 8% now. And they asked me, why do you think this is the case? So I wanted to ask you the same question. Do you think it 
are these things just always cyclical? It's still way below where it was in the crisis, which was up to like 14%. Wait, I'm just eyeballing it. It looks like it's still below the 200-day moving average. <laughs> yes. There's a head and shoulders pattern here somewhere. So why do I think this is rising? I don't know, because it probably can't go to zero. I mean, look where it is. It's still pretty damn low, isn't it? This starts in 2007, so it, it starts at a... But again, even in 2007, it was... But I'm saying, but look at the, look at the percent on the... On, the axis. Yes. So all borrowers, it's still less than 5%. Ages 18 to 29, it's up to around 8%. Yeah, still still relatively low. Is this a canary in the coal mine? I think so. We're seeing a dead cat bounce, which was another good Wall Street Journal one. I've never I've never heard this before. So they, they went through and figured out where does the term dead cat bounce come from, which is... And so this was written by Ben Zimmer at the Wall Street Journal. And this is something you say every time stocks fall a lot and then they rise a little bit. People say, nope. It's a dead cat bounce. And I guess this dates back to the 1980s. And there was a British book published in 1981 called 101 Uses for a Dead Cat, which was obviously supposed to be a humorous book. And someone for The Guardian, a British newspaper, wrote something about there being a dead cat bounce. And I think they actually used it the wrong way. And, it's, and it was talking about a market that continues to fall and it's, it's changed since. But this is something that gets used a lot. So I wanted to ask you, what are some of your other favorite financial phrases that get used and used and beat into the ground. Cautiously optimistic, like stuff like that? Yes. Second half story. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, there's a lot of animal ones. So there's black swan, you know, there's the canary in the coal mine. Yeah, but nobody... Does black swan really get used a lot? You don't think black swan's gotten used a lot since the crisis? Nope. <laughs> okay, shot down. Uh, we've seen this movie before when you know it ends. Yes, the of Perfect course. storm. Yep. Um, the easy money has been made. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of these that, that just get used and yeah, I don't know. I think canary in the coal mine is is probably my favorite because I still don't know what it means. Is that they sent a canary down there when they were blowing up the mines and if the canary sang, it was time to get out or something? Yeah, there's one that just, I was thinking about that just slipped my mind. I think you, Josh, and I did a blog post on this, like 50 phrases financial people say or something like that. Yeah, that's possible. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think so. We'll, we'll try to find that one. Okay. Oh, dr- like Druck says? Yes. All right. I got two surveys for this week. One of them from... Charles Schwab, they say, according to their Modern Wealth Survey, three in five Americans pay more attention to how their friends spend money compared to how they save, with an equal number saying that they're at a loss to understand how their friends are able to afford the expensive vacations and trendy restaurant meals they portray on social media. Oh, I think it's like five out of five. I, yeah, I was going to say, this seems low to me. The, yeah. Like, nobody, is, nobody ever is like, wow, that's a nice BMW. I wonder how much, I wonder if they're maxing out the 401k. Honestly, that's what I think. I see all these SUVs on the road and I think that person's not saving enough for retirement. Nope, that person's not saving enough yes, for retirement. Of course. Which is, maybe I shouldn't be thinking that way. But but most people outside of our industry probably just see the spending and they equate it with success. That's because saving and building wealth is the absence of stuff. There's there's nothing right. to see when someone is is saving. It's so, yeah. Wait, say that, say that phrase again. What? Saving and building wealth is the absence of stuff. Hashtag life coach. <laughs> All right. All right. Now, here's the worst survey of the week. This is why we, we are so anti-survey. A new poll by the Workforce Institute at Kronos predicts an estimated 10.7 million Americans will skip work the morning after the Game of Thrones finale. Is that the donut company? The donut company did a survey? <laughs> Cronuts. Yeah. Close enough. I, I mean, I don't know how much extrapolation is done here, but let's just say it's a lot. You think there's really 10, 11 million people that didn't go to work this morning because of Game of Thrones? So what is that going to do to GDP in the second half? Did you watch it or not? Well, I was watching the basketball game and flipping back to Game of Thrones during the commercial. What did you think of the ending? 
it was a tad slow for a finale, I will say, but I enjoyed the final season because I was never one of these people that like got so into the story and was invested in this. I just thought it was entertaining. You know what I don't care for? I don't care for people complaining about people uh, tweeting about Game of Thrones. Right. This is like the... I, I think this then is get one off, of the... Then get, if you really hate it so much, get off the internet for three hours. I mean, this is going to be one of the last shows that was like appointment viewing television because everything's going to be streaming in the future. So everyone is watching it at the same time. I, I mean... It was an enormous did, event and the, yeah. too cool, the too cool for school people... Yes. Get lost. Like you should you shouldn't be happy that you didn't watch it. Like and you're right. you're mad that people are mad or I don't know. I don't yeah. get it. I, I thought it was entertaining. The finale was a little but here's the thing. Mad Men was an unbelievable show. I wasn't a fan of the finale. Seinfeld the same thing. I was not a fan of the finale, but I love the show. I think there's a lot of shows like that that are gonna be stand the test of time as a good show, but people just didn't like the how it ended. Do you know eighty five percent of all finales underperform their benchmark? <laughs> That's true. I mean, it is really hard to nail the ending unless something like Breaking Bad, where the entire season, the entire series was written beforehand. Yes. I loved the show Bloodline and I hated the last season. Yes. Yes. The last two seasons were pretty bad. It's always like an anticipation thing. You're inevitably going to be let down because your expectations for a show that you love just cannot be matched. That that actually happens a lot with novels where the buildup is much better than the actual ending because sometimes it's just hard hard to get there. So I was fine with it. That's why I don't read detective books. Okay. But the detective books always have a good ending to them. All right. So you put this in here, retiring early. What is the secret to retiring early? Oh. So the secret to retiring early is make lots of money, don't have kids. Oh. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, that, that's pretty much that's Thank pretty you, Captain much Obvious. Having kids is expensive. Yes. Of course it is. Okay. Moving along. All right. What's this? Oh, did you see this? A stainless steel rabbit sold for $91 million and a white canvas sold for $15 million. Now, I don't want to say that we're in the late stages or that we're in the 11th inning. Are you talking about the late stages of capitalism or the late stages of the bull market? A stainless steel rabbit for $91 million? I think the white canvas is even worse. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, these people... You know what? If the Fed is not behind the curve, I don't know who is. Coming back around, like this is why that the guy paying off the student loan stuff was, was so great. Because... Yeah. You could waste your money on crap like this. And I mean, I guess you could make the investment implications, but this is just like a, I mean, this is just showing off basically, but. It sounds so wrong that somebody could spend $15 million for a, a white canvas. And again, I'm not trying to get holier than thou, but $91 million for a stainless steel rabbit. Yeah, that's. that's like there are people that, that could do a lot better with that, but. Whatever, whatever. Before you cut me off, is there anything else you have to say before I get to listener questions? I'm definitely cutting you off again. All right. I'm just waiting for my moment. Last week, you touched on a typical investor's timeline for holding an ETF. What do you think is the actual recommended time horizon for holding an ETF? You know, before we get to that, you know what I did this weekend? What? Can you see how red my head is? Yes, it looks a little reddish. Oh, yeah. I gardened. Sun touch. Oh, yeah. I gardened. I was going to wait for Tony Isola. But I couldn't wait because uh, I just had, I just had the urge. Landscaping has to be the worst part about being a homeowner. All right. So let me tell you what I did. I got topsoil. I got manure. And I got some other thing. I've, it's a word I've never heard of before. And you know the machine that like grinds up the dirt? Yeah. A tiller? Is that what it's called? Yeah. So we did the tilling or the tiller of the tilling. And then we made like a sifter. And we poured dirt in it and gave it one of these back and forth. 
to get the rocks out, and now I can't walk because I'm very my core is sore. And speaking of sore, my fitness pal has been fantastic for me. Thank you very much. How so? Because it gives you a reminder if you forget to put in a meal. And so I think just the act of putting in a meal, except for that giant dinner that I had last week, I've been very well behaved. So what do I plan on planting? I guess just like tomatoes and cucumbers and all that sort of stuff. So you built like an actual garden? An actual garden. Okay. I'll take pictures. All right. Yeah, I've, I've learned that stuff is not for me. Landscaping and uh, if I could have AstroTurf on my yard, I would, I would do it. But you just, don't like getting your hands dirty? I don't know. It's just not really. Would you say that you're more of an indoorsman? No, I like being outside. I just don't like doing landscaping work. Okay. All right. Where were we? Oh, what's the appropriate amount of time to hold an ETF? Yes. Forever in the voice of the I mean, Sandlot. This is Remember a good question. From this, the is a good, this is a good question. Yeah. This is a good question though because, it, because a lot of people don't spend the time to think about what's my time horizon before they go into an investment. And so the idea is it's different for everyone, but... You have to understand, are you saving for retirement? Are you saving for a uh, house down payment? Are you saving for vacation? So figure out where your time horizon is and then don't get it twisted with someone else's time horizon and just define it for yourself and figure out what type of, what type of what's investment is for, basically. You have to tie your investments to something. Otherwise, you're really flying blind, I think is what Ben's trying to say. Exactly. Okay. 23-year-old has been contributing to a permanent life insurance policy. E- Yeah. uh, Single. I was attracted to the idea that my money would not be tied to the market and would more than double by the time I was in my 60s. Literally face palming right now. Yeah. Paying $100 a month. This rate, I'd contribute roughly 50 grand over 40 years and then I could cash out when I retire. What do you guys think? Okay. This is not your fault. Somebody sold this to you. Nobody goes looking to buy a permanent life insurance policy. Well, especially at that age with no dependents. I think that's the biggest thing is that you're a single person... So, so our colleague, Jonathan Novi always says, no one really needs insurance. It's, you just have risks to manage. So, so what risk are you trying to cover here if you don't have a wife or children that are dependent on you? If your risk is that this money is not tied to the stock market because you absolutely cannot stomach stock market volatility, you don't need to, be, you don't need to pay insurance for that. You could do it in the form of just bonds. Right. Something easier. Yeah. This, I mean, there's, there's a time and a place for insurance in your life, but- 20-year-old, healthy, single person. By, by the way, $100 a month over 40 years gets you to $120,000. What's the IRR on that? And what would that money be if you just put it into freaking short-term bonds? Well, I figured if you made 6% a year on that over 40 years, you'd be close to $190,000 or so. All right. And what if you just put it into the Amazon IPO in 1997? Just go back in time. I would talk to your friend who sold this to you and yeah, it's definitely someone. It's definitely you're right. You nailed that. Someone's their their friend definitely sold them this. The friend oh, who yeah. got a new job and needed to sell some policies. By the so, way, I was I was a 23 year old who was told that permanent life insurance is for everybody, even grandchildren. So I get it. Yeah. Okay. Recommendations for the week. I will start. So I read the second edition of I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi, and I. I've been a big fan of his ever since he started blogging. I think I've probably been following him since I started, uh, since probably 2005, 2006. He's been on it for a long time. It was a 10-year anniversary of his book, and he updated it a little bit. I, I had thought about writing a personal finance book at one point, and I usually just give this one away, though. So if you're like if you have someone in graduating college 
or a young professional just starting out, I think this book is the perfect one to give them because it goes through things like bank accounts, credit cards, paying off debt, saving and investing. I, I think this is just a really good book for anyone who wants to get their personal finances in order. I'm about halfway done based on your recommendation. Actually, we're doing a video with Ramit next week. He's coming in. And I think it's great. I, I've, I'm really enjoying it. It's obviously a lot of very basic stuff for beginners, but I've, I uh, have definitely picked out a few things that I never knew before. A lot of people need to go back to the beginning too to, to actually figure out. What oh, they as need a, to for do. instance, one of the things that was that I didn't know and I wish I did was that if you buy tickets on your credit card, your credit card ensures that. So, like, you can call your credit card and, and have them cancel it. So. Two, a few weeks ago, when Robin and I went to Miami, it was sort of a last-minute thing, and I didn't know if we were 100% going to go. So I paid probably, I don't know, 150 bucks for flight insurance. Turns out, if I read Ramit's book, I wouldn't have done that. So Yeah, you, and sometimes it extends your warranties on your purchases. There's a lot of good credit card stuff. If you actually read through the little prospectus they give you, there's way more stuff. Like It does your rental car insurance, all that stuff. It's, it can save you a lot of money if you check it out. Uh, we started watching Chernobyl this weekend. It We're just one episode in, but it is really good. How many episodes is it? It's a five-part miniseries. And I didn't know okay. a ton about it before, but... I know nothing. Like, if you want to summarize career risk, this is the show for you. It is... um, Like, I, I knew, like, it, there was an explosion, and but I didn't know the, the extent of how bad things got after it actually happened and how much worse they made it. Is Chernobyl like the 1987 equivalent of, of nuclear energy? Yes, <laughs> I think so. Uh, we also watched Dead to Me on Netflix over the past week or so. Oh, how was that? Christina Applegate. I, I actually liked it. It's kind of the first two episodes. If Either they pull you in or they don't. There's kind of some nice little twists in there. And then it had the sister from Bloodline, which you mentioned. She was in Freaks and Geeks. It, I liked it. It was a pretty good sort of 10-episode show. Probably, I probably don't need to see the second season if they make it. It was probably a one no, season. Sure I, I didn't like that. This reminds me of that. Remember the show with Fred Armisen? Yes. And, um, forever. Forever. Yeah, you already took me to school on that one. That You didn't like it. Still mad at you? I guess so. All right, dead to me. It was. It was. It's not like drop everything you're doing and watch it, but it was entertaining. So okay. that's all I got. All right, we're good. No other recommendations for you? Nope. All right, shoot us an email, animalspiritspod at gmail.com. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>